Well, <laughs> what a morning. Uh, how about those earthquakes? How about those new lapel mics? Let's start all over again, okay? How about those earthquakes? Woo! That was something. You know, we live right over here. We're, we're just like down the street from you guys. I don't know about you. Did anybody get knocked out of bed? That's my question. Did anybody actually get knocked out of bed? Oh, there's like a bunch of you. Ha, losers. Uh, it's kind of a kind of a unique thing to get thrown out of bed. I don't know what your first response to, to the earthquake was. Um, I've thought a lot about mine because I've never been through anything like that. I'm from Canada. I mean, the worst we get is snow. And... Uh, and I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I was downright panic. I mean, as soon as that thing started, in, in my heart of hearts, in my soul of souls, I was going berserk. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. You wake me out of a dead sleep. You know what the worst part is? Is I, I mean, as soon as it happened, I had good, you know, husbandly instincts to try and jump on top of my wife and protect her from whatever was going to fall on her. And I threw my shoulder out. <laughs> I actually hyperextended my arm, you know, so it's stuck. I mean, I can't move my arm. We're shaking in bed, and I can't move my arm, and it's like in agony, and I'm going, my arm, oh, there's an earthquake, my arm, the earthquake. It was like a really bad thing. And so finally, I mean, 41 seconds later, however long the thing lasts, you know, we can't get out of bed. We're just bouncing all over the place, and my arm's stuck, and I'm on top of my wife, and she's trying to get to the baby, and a really exciting moment in our lives. And, uh, and... And she goes to get the kid, and, 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 you know, the next few moments go on. But I, I thought about afterwards my, when my in-laws finally got through to us, you know, trying to call. And my, and my father-in-law, a great godly man, uh, read some passages from Psalm 18 to me. And, and it, really, it really got my mind to thinking. You don't have to turn there. Let me read them to you. It says, Then the earth shook and quaked. And, you know, you know now whenever you read these kind of verses, right, you know what this is talking about. Now that the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because God was angry. And, um, and I thought about that and I thought, boy, I know what it means now for the earth to shake and quake. But he begins this psalm, it's a psalm of David, by saying this, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock. And we think, boy, we know that has a whole lot more meaning now to us as well. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Later on, he says, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. And as I read through that psalm and spent a lot of last week uh, poring over the pages of this psalm, um, it really struck me that in my heart of hearts, my first response wasn't the response of David. It wasn't the response of, Lord, save me. Lord, you're my rock, you're my stronghold. My first response was, I've got to save myself. I've got to take care of me. And then a little later on, I started thinking, I mean, you know, maybe a few seconds later on, I started thinking, well, I've got to take care of my wife, too. And, uh, and a lot more seconds later on, I think, well, I've got to take care of my kid. And, and then, and then it's, as the minutes ticked on and the, and the shaking stopped and I popped my arm back into socket, that was a thrill too, um, I, I started thinking, well, what about the guys upstairs? We have, we have guys that live with us and they're upstairs, so I went out there to see how they're doing and they're fine. And, and, I, and, and the shift began to happen in my thinking and, and, and it became more and more important to me that I knew the people who were dearest to me and the people who were closest to me were okay. And so immediately we, 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 checked, you know, we checked ourselves, we shut the gas off, we kind of 
recuperated than we got in the car. All of the, we all piled in one car. We wanted to be together, you know, all the guys and us. Were, and uh, it's like, everything's fine, everything's fine. And we drove over here to campus and see all of you out there and you're, you know, <laughs> freezing outside. And, uh, and, and just check in to see, you know, is everybody all right? Is everybody okay? Okay, good, good, good. And you kind of walk around and, and, you're, and you're seeing all this stuff and you're, and you're living in the midst of this nightmare, you know. And then, and then it begins to strike me, well, what about other people? I mean, I got, I got friends over in Valencia. And, and so we get in the car and we, we drive over there and we begin to see more and more damage. And, and you think, man, I hope they're okay. And you, and you go and you find them. And, and, and you see them. And I remember I, I saw Joel Miller. I went over to, to see if he was all right. And I just looked at him. And I didn't know what to say. I just gave him a big hug. And that's all I could do. Because it's like Joel's all right. And Jen's all right. And, 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 my, and the birds are okay. And the Kennedys are okay. And, and my friends are all right. And, and it's like, good Lord, thank you. Thanks for preserving them. And then, and then it was okay. You know, it was okay to go back and to maybe start picking up the pieces a bit. And it struck me that in the midst of that time, in the midst of, of watching you and then the next several hours as the day went on and the next several days as they went on and how we all began to see that what was important, what really mattered the most was, was us, right? Was people. You really didn't care if your fish tank fell over. I mean, yeah, it's a drag, especially if you're the guy who's landed on your head. Uh, but, I mean, it really didn't matter. What really mattered, I mean, we lost all our china, we lost all our dishes, we lost all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I tried to go in there and be sad about it. And I'm looking at that stuff and thinking, boy, maybe I should cry, you know. Maybe I'll show my wife I'm a sensitive guy. <laughs> I couldn't even get sad about that stuff. I mean, it didn't matter at all. What mattered is that my wife was alive and that my baby was alive and I was alive and my friends were alive and you were alive. And I began to see that each of us would, would just put all these encumbrances aside. And what mattered is that we were going to help each other get through this thing, right? We're going to go out. We're going to help people in the community. We're going to help each other. We're going to help each other clean our dorm rooms. We're going, to, we're going to dig alongside the maintenance guys and help them get things fixed. And everybody began to give of themselves for each other's benefit. And suddenly it didn't matter who was who and who was where and if this guy was a nerd and you were cool. None of that stuff mattered at all. What mattered is I need to help other people. Everything was cast away because we began to see what really mattered in life. We understood that for people to survive an earthquake, they needed to help each other. And I want to suggest to you this morning that for the church to prosper in this age, it needs each of you to be helping each other, just like you do in the midst of an earthquake, just like you respond when you begin to see what life is really about. Your first response is to minister to other people. Beloved, it's like that all the time, all the time. That you and I, as members of the body of Christ, are to be ministering all the time, to be giving up of ourselves. We're talking about the distinctives of the Master's College. We call them distinctives because we understand that these things are so important. By God's truth, as He has, as he has talked about them in His Word, we look at these truths and we say these are things that cannot be changed. These are untouchables. Nothing can be done with these. And so we call them our distinctives. Because it's our goal and our hope that as you would leave this school, these things would be so drilled into your mind that you would, you would just be, they would become a part of you and they would ooze out of you. And I have watched people come to this school and be changed because of the commitments of this school to, to be people who, who are not afraid to involve themselves in other people's lives, people who are not afraid to, to be involved in confrontation, exhortation, discipleship, people who are not afraid to be a part of the church and to minister. And this morning we want to talk about ministry. To understand ministry, I think, uh, I mean, when you talk about ministry, you're immediately talking about basically Genesis to Revelation. And to isolate this whole topic down into one message is a pretty difficult task. But what I want to do this morning is I want to begin to give you a greater sense of what it means for you to be a part of the church, 
Because I believe that as you understand what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, you will be so compelled in your heart to go out and to minister, to exercise your giftedness. Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. As you're turning there, let me remind you what the book of Ephesians is about. Paul wrote this book, and, and it seems like he's, he's, he's written it to be quite a general epistle, an epistle that, any, to, that could be circulated among the churches so that they would understand who Christ is and what's required of them based on who Christ is. And the book divides very neatly at chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. In 1 to 3, Paul talks about the work of Christ, who Christ is and what he's accomplished. You remember in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that beautiful tapestry, that beautiful, it's almost like a song as, as he talks about what it means to be in him and what Christ has accomplished. And it winds back and forth and up and down and all around. And you can read those verses 100,000 times and every time you'll just glean beautiful truth of who Christ is. In chapter 2, he talks about what Christ has accomplished. He says to verse 1, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our, in our transgressions, in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he reiterates that thought in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And not only that, you've been saved to walk in the good works that God has prepared for you. Over in chapter, the end of chapter 2, chapter 3, he begins to talk about the unity of the body. And he tells us that there's no longer Jew and Gentile, but now it's one body, the unified body. And in chapter 4, Paul launches off that thought. He switches gears a little bit because now he's going to say, okay, here's what's true about Christ in chapters 1 to 3. But in chapter 4, I want to begin to tell you what should be true about you. First he talks about Christ's work. And then he talks about the Christian's walk. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, read along with me. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walk worthy. Walk worthy. What has Christ accomplished? Look back with me. Chapter 1, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ, which the Father brought about in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, gave him to the church as head over all things which is his body, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He says, walk worthy of that one. Walk worthy of the one who has sealed your salvation. Walk worthy of Christ's calling. What does it mean to walk worthy? Well, he tells us very explicitly. He says to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And we understand that Paul considers this thing about you and I being unified in spirit, both in our own spirits and in the spirit of Christ, as a very, very important topic. And he's going to launch off of this one again in verse 4. And I think in verses 4 through 16 that Paul is going to give us two distinct views of the church. 
And it's if he's going to run over here up to this mountain peak and look down and give us one view, and then run down across the valley up the other peak and give us a second view. And he's looking at the same thing, but he notices two unique nuances to, the, to this thing called the church. The first thing he notices is that the church has unity. Although it's diversified, although it's made up of many different members, the church has unity. Read it with me in chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That word one there is there seven times. And you get the idea that this concept of unity is pretty important to Paul, right? Yes? And he heads nodding. Yes, we understand that this is a pretty important topic to Paul. He says there's one body, one church. It's Christ's body. And yes, we understand that there's local uh, extensions of that body that, 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 that as we see the church today, we understand by geographical limitation that there's many different bodies in that sense. But Paul says that there's the universal body. If you're saved, you're a part of the body. If you know Jesus Christ and if he's redeemed you, if he's sealed you, if he has made you his child, you are a part of that body. One body, one spirit, one spirit who indwells the one body of Christ. One hope. There's one salvation plan. There's only one to trust in. One, and, and that word hope really has the connotation of trust, that there's one to place your trust in. One Lord, Jesus Christ. One faith. One system of belief. One baptism. The baptism into Christ's death and resurrection. And one God and Father. And we sense there the divine unity that brings unity to all things. As God says, as he says in his word here, that he is the Father who is over all and in all and through all. And we see the great unity of the body of Christ. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Daisuke who comes from Japan, or it doesn't matter if it's me who comes from Canada. It doesn't matter if it's you who comes from here. We're all a part of that one universal body of Christ. Isn't that a great truth? That God has taken people, plucked them out as it were, redeemed his own, and made them all one singular body. And it's as if Paul runs up, the Apostle Paul runs up this, this mountain peak, looks down on the church, and he says, you know, the church is like a beautiful quilt. Have you ever seen some old quilts where people, all they had was scraps of material? And you take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you start sewing the whole thing together. And maybe, maybe if you looked at those colors uh, separately, you'd say, boy, that red and orange would never go together. That, that green and mauve, we say mauve in Canada, would never go together. But somehow when you put all those things together and you sew them all together and it has this strange and unique pattern, you look and you stand back and you look at it, you say, you know what, that's beautiful. That's very beautiful. Look at how there's great unity in the midst of great diversity. And Paul says that's the church. That he's taken you, he's taken me, he's taken people from all over this world, all through time, and he's, he's sewn them all together, and he's made the church. But not only is the church marked by its unity, it's also marked by its diversity. Look at verse 7 with me. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, host, he led captive a host of captives, 
and he gave gifts to men. Now stop right there for a second. Notice the the word but, B-U-T, in verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given. Paul shifts here. He uses the adversative. He says, yes, the church is unified, but the church is also diversified. And how is it diversified? It's diversified by the unique in gifting of Christ, in Christ's grace. As he takes you as a believer, he redeems you, he saves you, and he imputes into you his grace and his gift for you to function in the midst of that body. Do you realize that? Have you considered that fact? That God has uniquely created you to serve a purpose in this one unified body? Let's read on. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now what's Paul talking about here? He's quoting Psalm 68. And you know, if you were to read Psalm 68, this is very, uh, in Psalm 68, um, the psalm is talking about God the Father and and talking expressly about, about war and going to battle and things like this. But he says, no, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. What are these gifts? Well, what you need to understand here, this is going to be a little difficult, but follow with me, is that the gifts Paul talks about in verse 8 are different from the gift that he talks about in verse 7. The gifts of verse 8 are, we're described what those gifts are in verse 11, okay? We're going to go down there in a minute and see what those gifts are. But when Paul says he ascended on high, he needs to explain what that means. And so if your Bible probably has the little parenthesis there, saying that this isn't really continuing the thought, but it's a tangent to the thought so that he's going to explain what he means here. He says, now this expression, verse 9, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And Paul just wants us to know that that when I'm quoting this psalm here, what you need to understand is, as I quote it, I understand this psalm to refer to Christ. Because Christ is the one, right? Philippians, Philippians 2, who came down, who dwelt with men, and who ascended back at the right hand of God. And that's all he's saying there. Christ is the one. And so Christ is the one, verse 8, who led captive a host of captives. And he uses the imagery that Christ would come down die on the cross, save us, and hold us as captives. Captives, unable to go away. God redeems us, and he says, you're my captive. And he returns to heaven with his host of captives. And he gives gifts to men, these gifts to his who are captive to him. And that's found in verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, or some as pastors dash teachers and we'll talk about that in a second apostles it's important that you understand what these four gifts i believe there's four not five four gifts are that god gives to the church he says i give some as apostles and we understand really quickly what an apostle is right apostle was one who saw christ who was called and set apart by god to be a proclaimer of the message of christ's good news and so Paul was an apostle. There were the 11 of 12 apostles until Judas killed himself, and then his replacement, Matthias. And then there were certain other men who were referred to at times as apostles. Timothy was one of them. But they were certain unique, gifted men given at the apostolic age, only at the time of the birth of the church. And their job was to go out and to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so they would travel about going from city to country to state to province, giving the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And so they would arrive in some town. There's no church there. There's no believers there. People have never heard of who Jesus is. They don't know anything about Judaism even. And they would begin to proclaim the good news and say, repent, repent. And then they would establish the church. But their job was to continue to go on and to continue to start churches and plant churches. And so God also gave to the church prophets, prophets. The prophet was to go and to proclaim the word of God to the people of the church. Again, this was a gift that was given only in the early days of the church. Because think about it for a second. When Paul was being an apostle, I mean, there was basically First and Second Thessalonians around in the early days. It was a long time before he was writing a lot of books. And so they didn't have the New Testament like you and I have. And there'd be a lot of questions. I mean, Paul, what do you do? Uh, you know, the Corinthians. Paul, we've got a, uh, we've got a brother sleeping with, a, with, his, with his stepmother. I mean, what, what, is, is this bad? Is this wrong? And so there wasn't clear truth always about certain issues. And so God gave prophets to the church to give direction to the church. That was their unique giftedness. They were there to help the church, to fill in the gaps of the New Testament canon. So the apostle was one who traveled. The prophet was one who stayed fairly local. And we don't know if every church had a prophet or maybe a group of churches in a geographical area was gifted with a prophet. It's, it's a little difficult to tell, but that, those were the two roles. Now, both of those things have ended. We don't have apostles and prophets today. We don't need them today. But we do need the next two gifts. Evangelists. Evangelists. When you see that word evangelist, you can think of the term church planter. Philip was an evangelist. Timothy was called an evangelist. Paul was called an evangelist. And evangelists basically fulfilled, they were sort of the corresponding role of an apostle. And they, didn't, they weren't men who were uniquely set apart in the sense that they had seen Christ and spoke with Christ and heard the words of Christ. But they were men who had been saved and who had been gifted by God with an evangelistic gift so that they would go out and share the good news, proclaiming the good news going from city to town to country, proclaiming the good news of Christ. Now, the same problem existed. If these guys were out starting churches but then having to leave, if they were planning all these churches, the church still needed someone to stay local. And so God gave pastors and teachers. Now, that word and there can be a little disgruntling to some. You might think that, well, that's, you know, maybe God gave pastors and he gave teachers. But if you want to trust me, and if not, you can read a whole bunch of books and then you'll trust me, um, that, that that really refers to one office. And you might want to put in there just a little dash. You don't have to write it in your Bible, but just understand that it's talking about one type of person. It's talking about elders. It's talking about overseers, about pastor teachers. And so God gave to the church men who would teach the church, men who would now take the New Testament canon, begin to expound it, begin to call people to obedience to it. And God gifts the church with these men so that they can be honed and shaped. The church can be honed and shaped to be what Christ would want it to be. In fact, Paul answers that in the next verse. He tells us why God has given these unique gifts to the church. Verse 12, for, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now stop there for a second. For the equipping of the saints. That word equipping means um, to, to perfect, to train. And it's, it's used in medical terminology at the same time when people were still speaking that language. They would say, I need to, I need to equip his broken tibia. And, and it means to set a bone. It means to take a broken bone and to set it back. Now I know all about that because when I was in high school I broke my clavicle. Want to know how I broke my clavicle? I don't have any great story. I was a dope. I was running up an aisle of an auditorium without my shoes tied, and I tripped and fell into one of those bolted chairs. You know those little, like, wood arms that stick out that are bolted onto the bolted chair? 
Well, I just drove my collarbone right into that thing, and it didn't move, but my collarbone kind of collapsed into my body. I was trying to be graphic there to gross you out. And when I... So, I mean, when you break your, when you break your collarbone, it's kind of painful. So I go, I go to the hospital, and they're going to set my bone. They're going to equip my bone back. And when the doctor did it, you know, they put you in this brace, and they pull it back and trying to get it to, to line up again. And so that, so that that thing will grow back. But when he did it, he didn't do it all the way. So now i got this great, huge, gaping bone sticking out of my clavicle. So I'll pull it down right here. You can all see. Isn't that gross? Well, it's actually not a great big bone. But is, I have this like, little bump there because it wasn't set right. That bone wasn't equipped right. I'm getting really embarrassed talking about my clavicle. So I'll move on. Uh, but that's what the word means. It means to equip, to perfect, to, to set back in the right kind of standard, uh, to correct the attitude, to correct the thinking. And so God has given, God has given evangelists, God has given pastor teachers for you and I, for our equipping. God wants to equip us, to hone us, to exercise us, to shape us for the work of service, for the work of diakonia, for the work of ministry. God has given these men, a long way to get to it, to the church so that they would equip you and I so that we would be equipped to do the work of service. Does that make sense? That God has given these men to us so that we would be trained, so that we would do the work of service, that we would give aid, that we would do spiritually empowered, other-centered effort. (laughs) That's kind of a, a, a long definition, but let me say it again. Spiritually empowered, other centered effort, other centered work, other centered aid. God has given these men so that we might use our unique giftedness that we saw in verse 7 to minister to one another. Why does he do that? Look at the end of verse 12. To the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, that's a familiar phrase, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And beloved, let me tell you, before you go and complain about the church, before you say, man, the church is, is out of it, I'm going to go over here and do my own thing or this organization, or I'm just going to float around and go from church to church, or I don't like the way that guy preaches, or I don't have to get plugged in because blah, 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 blah. Before you dare make a comment like that, understand that God has ordained the church for the work of ministry. And God has ordained you as a member of that church to do the work of ministry. Flip over in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter. You remember Peter writes to people like you and I. People who are aliens. People who are displaced. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's who he's writing to. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is at hand, beloved. Boy, we know that. After an earthquake, you can, you can feel that verse a little bit more too, can't you? Verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one, notice, as each one, think about it, as you have received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
God's manifold grace, a grace that spreads out and uniquely equips each and every one of us to function in the midst of the body. Verse 11, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I say amen. Do you say amen? Amen. That God has equipped us to function in the midst of the body. I think back to my days at Evangelical Free Church of Los Angeles, about an hour south of here in L.A. And when I was a senior when I began to go to that church, and as I got down there and I'm in the midst of this inner city environment, there's about, there's about uh, 30 English-speaking people, about 150 or so Hispanic-speaking, Spanish-speaking people in this church. And I began to plug myself into the ministry there, not feeling like I can be very useful or very helpful. And I, and I go to the pastor. I say, Pastor Moore, I said, what can I do? He says, well, um, he says, we need somebody to teach in the, in the kindergarten and second grade class. Would you do that? And, so, and so, so my wife, my girlfriend at the time, she starts teaching that class, and I'm, and I'm helping her out. And he says, yeah, and we need somebody to help out also in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the older adult class. And would you be able to fill in there? And so I begin to do that. And then he throws his back out and he says, man, I'm not going to be able to preach for a couple weeks. Would you be able to preach Sundays a couple weeks? I'm thinking, me, man, okay, well, I'll do that. And as I begin to teach, because I feel like that's where God has maybe equipped me and maybe gifted me, I begin to sense that I'm not up here for me. And as I was at that church, and, and whether I was teaching little kindergartens or whether I was teaching people who were in their late 80s, it didn't matter. And as they would come back to me and maybe say, boy, you know, thanks for sharing that, I was so humbled. And it wasn't kind of a thing where I had to say to myself, boy, I really need to be humble here because I'm up front and I'm teaching. It wasn't like that at all. I didn't even have to consider that kind of stuff because it was so obvious to me that I was functioning my membership in the body of Christ. As I was involved in that body, that local body, that extension of the great universal body of Christ, I began to see that, man, this is what God has made me for. This is what He has equipped me for. This is why I am the way I am. And forever and ever, Jesus Christ, because it's Him who does the good work through me. Like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, you've been saved to walk in the good works that He's prepared for you. Flip your Bibles over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, of course, verses 1 and 2 are very familiar to us, but sometimes we forget to read on. Look at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, this is Paul writing again, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Do these words begin to sound familiar? But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. What a beautiful truth. Verse 6, and since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And we understand that this list is not meant to be, an, to be exhaustive. This list is not meant to say these are the only gifts and you people with these gifts need to respond. But, but Paul is saying whatever your giftedness is, whatever it is that God has, has created in you, whatever special gift he has imparted to you, however he has made you to function in the midst of the body, do so with Colossians 3.23 effort. Do so as unto the Lord. Work heartily as unto the Lord. Take that gift. Exercise that gift. Be a part of the body. Be a gamer. 
I remember when I was traveling across the western uh, provinces of Canada with some friends of mine, and we stopped to climb the Athabasca Glacier. And you know, glaciers were all over the planet 40 billion years ago. <laughs> and uh, anyway, this is supposed to be the last 40 billion year old glacier. Didn't matter to me; it just looked like a big hunk of ice. So we um, we started to climb this glacier. And as you, as you begin, it's really pretty easy climbing. You put on these, these about, they're about four-inch spikes on the bottom of your boots. You sort of strap them on. And some of you guys will know, all these things probably have names, but I've only done this once, so I'll just be ignorant. And, uh, and we begin to climb this thing. We're going along and going along. And we hike up about, man, not even a quarter of the way, and we've been hiking for hours. And, um, and I begin to notice that there's these big cracks beginning to develop in the ice. And, and they're not like cracks you see like on a pond, right? Because it's sort of a big smooth thing. It looks like a big tongue coming down between two mountains. <laughs> it's an odd thought. And, uh, and, and so we're climbing up these things, and the, and the splits the splits in the ice begin to, to begin to grow and to begin to enlarge. And, 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 and you had to call them crevasses. You couldn't call them crevices. I don't know what the difference is. But these crevasses would begin to, begin to get a little bit bigger. And so my friend Steve and I, we stopped, and we're looking down one. We kind of approach hesitantly, and we, we look down this thing, and we can't really see the bottom. And they're, they're getting to be about, you know, six, seven feet across. And, and they've got that deep blue ice on sheer ice on either side that just sort of drops down. And so we, we find a chunk of ice to do the old, you know, drop and see how deep it is test. And we drop it down there, and we don't hear anything. <laughs> and I'm kind of thinking, man... <laughs> I don't know how far that's going. I mean, I know it ends somewhere, but it's ending a lot too late for me. And I look up, and this guy's getting ready to take us over top of one of these things. And the only way you go over top is you, with all this gear on and these big clunky steel spikes, you run up to the edge and jump. And I said to him, you run up to the edge and jump. I'm going back down. But he had a certain plan about how to do this. So he pulls out a bunch of ropes, and he begins to tie us all in. You know, we got the harnesses and the things like that. And, and then he takes, he takes me, and he puts me over here, and he takes my friend Steve, puts him here, puts Jeff over here, takes another guy, puts Harold over here. And he's got us in this sort of weird pattern, and he gets us to put our pickaxes in and to tie around the rope and do all these strange little knots and stuff. And he gets a certain amount of slack on himself, and then he goes, okay. He says, this is going to take a while, but this is how you do it. And so he gets us all roped together, and then he goes first, and he makes the jump. And he does okay. He makes it across. Better jumper than me. And, uh, and, he, he, and then he does the same thing on the other side. He drives his pickaxe in. He, he ropes on. He does this thing. He does that thing. And then the next guy goes. And then the next guy goes. And then you realize that he's roped us all together so that if one of us falls, we're not all going down. In fact, we're going to save that one who falls. And the body of Christ is the exact same thing. That you've been roped together with the body of Christ. And those big crevasses are going to come. There's going to be areas where God has maybe not gifted you or maybe times where your flesh is, is ruling in yourself and that you need to be roped together into the body of Christ so that if I'm there, you, I can hold on to that rope. Or if it's me who's going down that big crack into the ice, going to get wedged down there and suffocate and die, it ain't going to happen because you're going to have your rope there and you're going to say, whoa, Paul, I got you, man, I got you. Come on, pull him back up, guys. And you're all going to come alongside just like you do in an earthquake, just like you do in physical tragedy, so you will do as a body of Christ. You'll rope yourselves together and we will function as one. Unity in the midst of diversity. Finally, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. If you get the sense that I'm being redundant here, it's on purpose. 
And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things and all persons. But to each one, that would be you, that would be me, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 12, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Then Paul gets very simple. He says this, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And finally, verse 27. Now you, beloved, are Christ's body and individually members of it. You are Christ's body. We are Christ's body and individually members of it. And whether you're a foot or an arm or a head or an elbow or a knee or a scab, I don't care what you are, you're a part of the body of Christ. And as a part of the body, whatever you are, whether you're just a molecule or whether you're a strong hand, whatever you are, God has placed you into that body to function in the midst of that body. Now picture with me, if you will, some some person with a body who just never exercises a certain limb of their body. I mean, it works fine. It's right there. There's no nerve damage. There's nothing. But they just never use it. And they try and walk along never using their leg. And you say, what's the matter with you? Why don't you use your leg? And the guy says, well, I just don't want to use my leg, thank you very much. And we say, you're an idiot. What do you mean you don't want to use your leg? There's people that would die to have that leg. Use your leg. And God has made the body to function in the same way and has equipped it with you and I as the members of the body. Ministry begins in the midst of the body, in the midst of the local church. And from the local church springs out that you go to your church, you're a part of your church, you minister in your church, and then you minister outside of your church, you bring people in, you evangelize, and then you help other people. But ministry begins in the midst of the body of Christ. Turn back again to Ephesians 4. It's very interesting to me that Paul continues on. He talks all about this unity, and we don't have time to read down through verse 16, but he develops this thought again about how the, how the, the unity of the body and the ministry of the body, that the, that the cellular functioning of the body is necessary for the health of the one body. And then he transitions his thought in verse 17, and he sort of picks up where he started. He says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And he begins a discussion. And it's a very unique discussion, a unique discussion to Paul about the new man and the old man. And he says, don't walk as the old man. Don't turn around and dig up the grave of the old man. You were saved. 
You were redeemed. You've been, you have been made a new man, a new woman. Walk as that one. Wear the clothes of the new man. It's kind of the easiest way for my mind to understand it. Because it's as if we sometimes turn back and we look at that dead corpse in the grave and we say, man, I want to put those corpse clothes on again. You know those ones that are all rotten with maggots? And so I walk over there and I begin to put them on. And what are those clothes? Well, let's look at them. It's anger, stealing, unwholesome speech, lying, uh, um, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, immorality, impurity, all of these things. And Paul says it's foolishness. It's foolishness for you to go back and put on all these old dead clothes. Walk as the new man. Walk as the new man who walks in peace of mind, who walks with gentleness, kindness, humility, forbearance, being diligent to preserve the unity of the body. And beloved, let me tell you that when you are a part of the body of Christ, if you have the tenacity to stand before God and to say, you know what, um, I really don't think that I'm going I'm to exercise my gift in this. And somehow you just, you just forget about your salvation. You forget about the fact that God has sealed you with, your Holy, with His Holy Spirit. You forget about the fact that He's redeemed you. You forget about the fact that God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You forget about the fact, I can forget about the fact, that we've been individually gifted by God and by virtue of being in the body of Christ and the Spirit indwelling that body that we are uniquely empowered to minister to in the midst of that body. We put all that stuff aside and we come up with our excuses, don't we? And we say, you know what, I just really don't have time. When it comes right down to it, I'm a student and I've and I got this stuff to do and, and I really just don't have time to be ministering in the body right now, okay? I mean, maybe later on that'll be something for me, but I just don't have time. I've got a few other responsibilities. And somehow we think that that passes as an excuse. Or we may say to ourselves, well, I'm just, I'm not mature enough right now. I'm a new Christian and, uh, and or else I've been, you know, I, I, I've just been, I haven't grown in the last 28 years and, um, and I, I just, I'm just not really mature enough to really give anything to anybody, so I'm not going to minister my gift right now. Or maybe we say, you know, I got sin in my life and, I, and I, I just, I'm not pure enough to minister my gift right now. And beloved, let me tell you something. If you think you can take that excuse and stand before God, the almighty living God, and say, God, you know, I just didn't exercise my giftedness because I didn't really have time. Do you think he's going to look down there and say, oh, pat on the head, that's okay, go on your way. God doesn't buy an excuse like that. Those are the excuses that belong to the old man, to the old self, to the dead man. Chapter 4, verse 30, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit of God? You grieve the Holy Spirit of God by putting on the clothes of the dead man. And beloved, I know, I know because I know you and because I've been in your place. I know there are some of you out there who do not minister your giftedness. You're like a dead leg on the body of Christ. And I'm telling you today that as you walk in that path, as you put on the clothes of the dead man, that you grieve God, that you sadden the heart of God. And if you can stand there and look me in the face and say, yeah, that's what I want to do. And I say, i got enough of you, no time for you, because you need to repent as I need to repent, as we all need to repent, as we need to turn around, because there's always some stagnant thing in there where we don't want to, we don't want to let go of that thing. We want to keep on the dead sock or whatever it is, but, we, but we, need to, we need to turn to God. And we need to say, God, I don't want to grieve you. I don't want to sadden you. The fact is, I want to please you. And I want to stand before you someday and I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Well done, good and faithful servant and beloved. That's what I want God to say when He sees you. That's what I want Him to say when He says when He looks at me. So I want Him to say, "Well done. You were faithful, faithful and little." And whatever your giftedness is, however God has created you, if you can take that giftedness, plug yourself into the body of Christ, function your membership in the body of Christ, whether you're an elbow, whether you're a knee, whatever you are, as you take that and you exercise that giftedness in the body of Christ, you will find great joy. But you don't do it for the joy. You do it because it pleases God. It pleases God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Father, it would never be our desire, never be our desire, Lord, as we would think about it, to disappoint you. And Father, I don't, in any stretch of the imagination, want to put guilt trips on people or on myself, but I do want us, Lord, to consider the fact that you are grieved when we are unfaithful, and you are grieved when we walk as the old man, because you, God, have given us everything we need to walk in truth to walk in your spirit, to walk uprightly, and to minister your giftedness that you have given to us, that you have given us the deeds, Lord, to walk in. And all we need be is faithful people. So, Lord, I pray. I pray you would do a work in our hearts right now. Father, bring to mind in our own souls where we fall short. Bring to mind in our own selves where we fail. And Lord, help us. Help us to repent. Not that we could say in, in, in publications or to our friends that, yeah, I'm living the distinctive of a master's college, but so we could say, I'm living to please my Savior. Oh, Lord, let that be our heartbeat. Take a minute now in your own heart. Evaluate your own soul. Talk to the Lord, and I'll close this in prayer in a minute. Help us to be the people you have called us to be. Use an earthquake, God, to remind us of what we really can do if we have to do it. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you're patient with us, God. That it's your desire to be pleased with us and you want to help us. You're a loving and a kind Father, not, not a despot. We give you praise for that. Do a great work, Lord. Amen.